This is your public radio station, 91.3 FM KUAF, a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. And this is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, June 7th, 2022. I'm Timothy Dennis. And I'm Matthew Moore. On today's show, we hear more about the first 10 years of Fayetteville's Fossil Cove Brewing Company and what they plan for at least the next 10 years. Plus, we learn about Maurice Footsie Britt, one of the most decorated service members of World War II. The Arkansas native is profiled in a new book by Alex Kershaw titled Against All Odds. The stories and more, but first today, it's been two weeks since the primary election in Arkansas. And although the runoff election for some of those still undecided races is still a couple of weeks away, there's still much to be said about the outcome from some primary races decided on May 24th. That was the topic of conversation this week between John Brummett, a political columnist for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, and Roby Brock from our partner, Talk Business and Politics. They began their conversation with a focus on the Republican primary for U.S. Senate. While John Bozeman won the primary without a runoff, he did so with 42% of those casting ballots in the primary voting against him, the largest percentage voting against an established candidate in recent history. Well, I just just finished a column on it, uh, so it's uh, kind of fresh. But uh, my analysis, I have to admit, is largely drawn from being on a panel with you uh, and uh, uh, Republican consultant Robert Kuhn at the governor's mansion the day after the primary. I was struck by his uh, that very analysis. First, he said uh, the unconventional, more conservative uh, kind of cons- anti-establishment conservatism as recently as, say, 2018 in the form of Jan Morgan in a primary against Asa Hutchinson was about 30%. Now it's, you add Jen Morgan and Jake Beckett together, it's 40. And then there's another fellow in the race, as you say, it comes to 42. So he's alternative, more extreme Republicanism uh, is rising, mm-hmm. but uh, not enough to, uh, to win, but that's a notable rise in four years. So he saw a little something going on. I, in answer to your question on that panel, said, well, he solidified the rest, Bozeman did, and insulated himself against any greater erosion by by banding about that vital Trump endorsement. But then the other panelists said, it may be, and this was most interesting, uh, the greater thing is that uh, Bozeman had his old friend and campaign, uh, former campaign manager, Sarah Sanders, rather than Trump. She's the one who got the endorsement delivered. She's the one who protected it when it might have been under threat. And she did an an ad for him at the end, and she generated, sort of regenerated a kind of Trumpian energy that may not exist uh, for Trump right now, but she regenerated it in this uh, primary, got more votes in in, in this uh, election event than anybody, even, say, Karen Baker running in both primaries for Supreme Court against what turned out to be a weak opponent. So... Trump less than Sarah. I sat there on that panel, Roy, and thought, I believe what we're hearing here is that she transcends Trump, and she's the new boss of Arkansas. And uh, that's sort of, and, and Bozeman is happy to go back, but he goes back on uh, on coattails, uh, and and with lar- uh, and with surrogates having delivered that victory largely for him. Meantime, yes. Let's keep a watch on, uh, if we get another chance, uh, on this uh, alternative, more extreme uh, conservative republicanism. If it grows from 30 to 42, 
we need to keep an eye on it, don't you think? Where does it yeah. go next? Yeah, does it rise yeah. in the next election cycle or the one after, or do we see it decline after this? Right. I, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, let's pivot to that race there. She is the new political force in Arkansas. I mean, we've known that for several months uh, by witnessing what she's been doing on the campaign trail. But you look at some of the you know, eras in Arkansas politics there, you can go back to Rockefeller, you can look at Clinton, you can look at uh, Mike Beebe if you want to. Even Asa Hutchinson kind of ushered in a new era of Republicanism and, and politics in Arkansas. Now, I think we have the Sarah Huckabee Sanders era here she endorsed legislative candidates. She helped pull a U.S. senator across the line, and then she won in convincing fashion. Um, she's here, and she's going to be here for a while as a tour de force. Would you say? Yes, yes. Uh, I appreciate you getting me out the day after the primary to to sit with you and others before an audience of political animals at the governor's mansion, because otherwise I think I would have hit under this desk with my hands over my ears trying to block out the sound of election returns. This is overwhelming. It's clear. Uh, I uh, I don't care for her campaign. I don't care, obviously, and I don't care for the, for the prospect of her governorship, but it's here and it's strong and it is a new era. I, in answer to a question in that event, I told a fellow, you had Rockefeller as a transformational governor. Uh, sort of reforming the old corrupt racist Southern Democrats and in, introducing a new era of moderation and modernization. And I said it has continued through bumpers prior Clinton and even uh, uh, my, her own father, uh, Mike Huckabee and Hutchison. But I said, this is a new era. This is a retro conservative era and we're gonna see where it goes, but it's plainly, it's plainly a shift. In, in, in what our politics is all about. And you made the excellent point that uh, she runs against the status quo and she puts it, she blames the status quo nationally because every, she knows politics is nationalized. She, when she says things can't go on this way, we've got to stop the way things are going. She's saying Joe Biden, uh, Cort, uh, Alexandria Casio-Cortez, uh, national Democrats and the woke cancel culture. When in fact in her job, Centrally in her job, her Republican predecessor, Asa Hutchison, can cite many fine accomplishments. And though she doesn't run remotely on those, or hasn't yet, she's run uh, uh, entirely against the way things are without really considering that the Republican governor now in office coming for you uh, likes to tell us that things have been pretty good in Arkansas, but which by many standards they have been. All of that is to say, yes, this is you had a Rockefeller era, you had the modernization era that covered people, these moderate progressives, and even some Republicans, uh, a couple of them. And now you got, now you got the era of Sarah, and it's coming, and it's here, and it's strong. The era of Sarah, retro conservatism. There's my takeaway right there. That's another call for you, I, I suspect, uh, in the coming days. Uh, Chris Jones on the Democratic side wins convincingly in his primary, too. An impressive showing uh, among a crowded field of Democrats. He clearly stood out to Democratic Party voters, even though they are much smaller in number. Um, he starts out as the long shot in this race. He acknowledged that in his acceptance speech, uh, his victory speech on election night. Um, what, what does he have to do, I guess, to try to move some independent voters over into his column and what kind of race do you expect him to run against Sarah Huckabee? You know, I, it, one answer to that is the fatalistic answer. He's a he's a 
perhaps brilliant guy, possibly, uh, re a remarkably accomplished fella, young, energetic, impressive, uh, and and yet I think he's probably kept at 37%, and there's nothing he can do in this in this culture uh, because he's got the D, and the D is toxic when you get out of Little Rock, and before you get to Fayetteville, Eureka Springs, or a couple of Delta counties, uh, the D just kills you. What he's got to do is is separate himself from the weight of the National Democratic Party. He, he, he can't go, he's got to find, he's got to seek a, a sweet spot that, that emphasizes his personality and his appeal because that remains a big part of our, our consideration of governors. But, but and, that, and that can begin to connect with people, make them think about progressive notions exclusively within Arkansas on Arkansas issues. And that might uh, inconvenience uh, uh, Ms. Sanders a little bit if he could get some currency for that. I think Jones is a better Democratic candidate than Arkansas may want or deserve. And he's uh, uh, a better Democratic candidate for governor than the party that he represents in its current anemic state. So he's got to make it about him, who he is about his appeal and about his ideas that may connect somewhere out there in Mountain Home or, or uh, Clinton that makes people think about him and his candidacy in an Arkansas way. That's a tall order, but it's what he's got to do because if he runs laden with the National Democratic Party in Arkansas, he, 37 is going to be about it. John Brummett is a political columnist for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette. You can read his columns at ArkansasOnline.com. And Roby Brock is with our content partner, Talk Business and Politics. You can hear their full conversation and read more news from around the state at TalkBusiness.net. This is Ozarks at Large. As we approach the end of our financial year, June 30th, we're raising funds to keep KUAF stronger than ever. Your gift this month will help us toward our goal of $50,000. Your support helps pay for the programs, reporting, equipment, and technology that we need to continue bringing you radio you rely on every day. If you've never given a gift to KUAF, now is a great time because Bill Enfield of Bentonville is matching the donations of new supporting listeners dollar for dollar up to $1,000. Now is the time. Go to supportkuaf.com or mail a check to KUAF at 9 South School, Fayetteville, AR 72701. And thank you. This month, Fossil Cove Brewing Company in Fayetteville celebrates its 10-year anniversary. Last week, Ozarks at Largest Daniel Carruth sat down with owner Ben Mills and marketing director Andrew Bland to talk about how craft brewing in the region has changed in the past decade since they started. And so... Let's talk about that, the history of, of Fossil Cove. Looking back 10 years ago, um, how does it feel to make it to this point? Uh, it's kind of wild. Uh -huh. it's, you know, everyone's been, everyone's been congratulating us and saying, hey, it's, you know, it's kind of crazy to think that it's already been 10 years. It really is kind of crazy to think it's been already been 10 years. I, Andrew and I were both pretty young when we got, got into the brewery. When I started it, I was 25, and he, he joined uh, not even a year later. Um, so it's pretty much all we've done for our, you know, twenties and up into our thirties now. And so it's just what we do, you know, sort of look up one, one day and go, Hey, we're going to be 10 years old. That's kind of crazy. Yeah. 
there's just been a, a lot of work and we've, we've always, uh, had a lot of challenges and, um, being one of the, <clears throat> being one of the first to, to, to start a brewery here in this kind of new, um, new era of brewing in, in Arkansas, uh, you know, we've just had our hands full and we haven't had a lot, a whole lot of time to sit back and think about how old we are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We were like talking earlier and it was like, you know, it's felt like two years ago we just started, you know, mm-hmm. it's like you got, we got to eight years and then we were like, Oh, a couple years of COVID. And we went from eight years to 10 years in the blink of an eye. And it was like, where did, where did that go? Yeah. And we just kept yeah. moving through it. And so take me back to, to that 10 years ago. What was the inception for Fossil Cove? Oh, I, you know, you can start with, with me. I've, I have a biology, biology degree from Arkansas Tech University. Uh, and while I was down there, I started making wine and beer and really enjoyed it and um, ended up not really having much of a specialty with that degree coming out. So I had a lot of options as far as a career went. And so I, con- I considered a few other things and um, ended up deciding to pursue brewing, just, just a brewing job as a career, and, and uh, got accepted to the UC Davis Master Brewing Program. At, uh, it's part of their extension program. Got accepted to that, uh, worked for <clears throat> a small brew pub in Silverton, Colorado, called Silverton Brewing Company um, while I was waiting for school to start. And while I was there uh, in 2010, came across some equipment in Washington that was for sale and uh, had already been thinking about what my my first play after school would be. You know, where am I going to go? What what job? Like where? I'm, you know, I thought the world was my oyster. And uh, we ended up uh, buying that equipment and, and the game plan became to open uh, some sort of brewery, whether it be a brew pub or whatever worked out here in Northwest Arkansas once I got done uh, with school. So that was what happened. We, I got done with school in June of 2011, and uh, we rented the building <clears throat> in the fall of 2011, and I, we had it ready, and we're selling beer in uh, June 2nd, 2012. And what was the environment here like for craft, craft beer at that time? Oh, man, it was different. You know, like, uh, there weren't very many breweries in town. It would have been me and Tanglewood. Hoghouse. Uh, Hoghouse, which Core was uh, brewing out of Hoghouse at the time when I first started. I think maybe... West Mountain. About the time. And then West Mountain had just started brewing. That's where uh, uh, Andy Coates from Ozark got started here in Northwest Arkansas. Uh, but yeah, you know, outside of not having very many breweries, uh, especially no packaging large production facilities of any sort, um, it was kind of, we knew go, coming in and I knew coming in that we were going to have to do a lot of education, not only educate people about beer, but educate people about the fact that we even existed. You know, in the beginning, there were people here who knew about craft beer and everything. And since then, um, I think just with the the growth of the craft beer industry, the, the growth of the craft beer demographic has, has increased quite a bit. And I think now there's a lot more knowledgeable people. Um, I think there's a lot of uh, people moving from from very craft beer centric areas of the country, with all of the growth that we're experiencing in the, in the area, uh, Northwest Arkansas, and that that's also helping grow our customer base and the experience. And and then the craft beer industry is, you know, about 2000s, early 2000s was when it really started taking off. Now you've got 21 year olds that their dad that's all they ever had in the fridge, and so they have this experience where we used to go on. Uh, family trips, right? And their dad drags them to the breweries. They're like I've got, I've, I now have bartenders. I had a one bartender, who their her family dragged her to one of our events when they were, you know, when she was still younger, and it was when we were still young too. And so now she had 
come from being a, you know, part of the family coming in to being someone who can enjoy it and work at a brewery and actually serve the beer and stuff. And so it's, I think we're seeing a bit of a generation, generational, uh, loyalty thing going on. Yeah. The, the number of people that have told me that the La Brea Brown was their first beer, or like their first beer when they turned 21 or they come to Fossil Cove for their 21st birthday. It, like, it blows my mind. Like, I don't think I ever would have really like fathomed that. And now you regularly meet people who that's the case. And it's really cool to just to be someone's uh, local brewery and to be that brand that they're always going to have in their fridge. Yeah. I mean, when I turned 21, I def- we definitely weren't going to a brewery. <laughs> no way, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I can remember the brewery when it, I guess when you guys first opened and it was just the big brew room, you right. know, the big warehouse oh, basically. Like, and there was the tiny tap room in the, in the front. Yeah. You know, can you talk about integrating into to the community and making it this place that so many people, even people who can't drink beer want to come be a part of? Dude, I, I think that's one of the coolest things. If you've been following Fossil Cove from the beginning and you had that experience of coming into the original bar and just looking out there and seeing the original brew space, there's a basketball goal and like a workbench and tools and just like bags of granny. It was a, a working brewery in there. And now, you know, all of that has moved down the street to the production facility and it's just the space has opened up. It's a lot nicer, I would say. We've made some improvements, um, and, and that really just comes down to the the customer and, and the community saying, this is a space that we want to come and enjoy, and, and we're really just responding to that. But, you know, at that time when all of those breweries were kind of popping up and things were really getting started, what was it about beer, do you think, that made it – craft beer that made it so special or, or something that people wanted to get behind and be a part of? I, that's a good question. I, I think it's the thing that we're still noticing right now. It's this it's this hyper-local trend they've been kind of writing about, and it's something we have experienced, if not since the beginning, um, especially the past few years since COVID. Um, you know, I just that it's that kind of hyper-local, that shift, yeah, it's... you know, from uh, the, the larger lager breweries. And, and I think people um, – it's not just a craft beer thing is what I'm trying to say. I think it, it's more of just kind of a – general attitude people have nowadays i would say it really at least for me what separates craft beer from a lot of the other experiences is the tasting room experience the tap room experience and that ability to really just like connect one-on-one with a customer um you know you're sometimes you've got the the owner the head brewer just the person that made this beer that you're drinking and enjoying right behind the bar telling you about it, just being able to, to create those connections over something that you make, um, something that you're really excited to share. And how, have, I mean, have your taste or ideas or conceptions about beer changed in these past 10 years at all? No, but demand <laughs> upon us has changed. Don't gotcha. just, <laughs> the, the trick is if Ben says he's not going to brew a certain beer, <laughs> give it a year and like, we're going we're gonna to brew it. Like hazy IPAs. Fruit beers. Yeah, eventually we've we got always, a, we've got a pilsner we're brewing this yeah. summer. Um, yeah. so. No, eventually they always get what they want. Eventually, but uh, I you know I came into it with, with pretty classic ideals, um, trying to keep it simple to prevent us from being inefficient in the process and and, and in, ending up with beers that don't sell and you know we just can't can't really afford to waste product, uh, especially as, as small as we were. But now we've got 
you know, we've got time and we've got staff and we've got equipment and we've got what we need to really, really be experimental and, and try new things and respond to customer requests about different styles that maybe we don't have any experience with, but they would really like to see us brew and we're starting to do more of that. Um, I'd say the, the number one way where we're, we're really responding to that is, and the number one thing that's helping us kind of round out our portfolio and stay versatile and flexible is the Saturday series. And it's where we allow our bartenders to come in uh, to come up with a beer. And so they'll come up with whatever style they want. You know, they set the parameters, the color, the hops, the yeast they want to use, the style of beer they want to produce, and the name. They, they make their own board for it whenever it comes out. And so we'll sit down and we'll brew it. And they're there for the brew day. And um, they go through the whole process. Um, and then... Uh, We'll finish the beer off and keg it and put it on tap and sell it at the tasting room and then and then they get a, a you know fun promo on the social media and and get a little bit of a it's a fun way to highlight our staff um, and the individuals that work there and also their beer preferences. And so ten years later, what uh, keeps you still excited about the business and about the about craft beer? I think for me personally, it it is. Uh, it's the challenge of the job still. Um, I, you know, I, th- I have to ask myself that question quite a bit, and people ask me that question quite a bit. And at the end of the day, it still is just the challenge of the job. I mean, there's, I'm still responsible for everyone that works there. I'm st- I still go in every day and, and just do whatever needs to be done. And, you know, there's a lot still to be done. We're not, I, I, haven't, I haven't delegated myself out of a job yet. So for me personally, that's what it is. It, it stays exciting. Um, you know, there's always something new to do. We've done a really good job of, of, of giving ourselves activities and events. You know, we've got Frost Fest. We've got all the other festivals that we commit to. We've got, he and I have, uh, have been uh, largely uh, a part of the Arkansas Brewers Guild. Um, you know, there's just always something to do. I, I, need, I need to stay busy. So for me personally, staying busy is what gets me excited and why not do it with this with these cool cool cats that work down there with me and and uh, in a cool town like Fable? Yeah, yeah. I, I think just getting to be part of this community as it continues to grow, just Northwest Arkansas in general, craft beer community. I mean, new beers always get me excited. Uh, I I just love it when someone comes up with just something like way out there and completely different that you would never expect. So always watching for those, but just you know more community events, people just really, um, people love this town. Um, we love this town. So it's really just getting to be part of Fayetteville on a really um, deep level is, is great. Uh, At the end of the day, we've always talked about it being a community gathering place. And, and that just is, I think it really the goal that we all strive for. I think it's the, the common theme. We don't really have written down mission statements or anything, but it's, that's the common theme. And the driving force behind every decision we make is, is this good for the community? Is it good for the customer? Um, it's not, it's rarely ever about what's most beneficial for us. Other than beers that we want to drink. Other than the beers we, we want to drink. Yeah, we yeah. always brew stuff, you know, we want to create the, the space and the beers that we would enjoy. Right. That was Fossil Cove owner Ben Mills and marketing director Andrew Bland speaking with Ozarks at Large's Daniel Carruth last week. 
Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. One of the most decorated men in World War II was Arkansas native Maurice Footsey Britt. The former football player for the University of Arkansas and the Detroit Lions was the first American to receive every award for valor in war, including four Purple Hearts, the Distinguished Service Cross, the Medal of Honor, and the Silver Star. Alex Kershaw profiles Brit, as well as three other Americans who also earned medal after medal, in his new book, Against All Odds. This spring, Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellams asked Kershaw what drew him to the subject. Um, well, I met a guy called Bob Maxwell out in Oregon, and at the time he was the oldest living Medal of Honor recipient um, and he belonged to the third ID and I got talking to him about the third ID. I'd been interested in the third ID for a long time. And the thing that I'd come across pretty early on was that the third ID received 36 medal of honors during world war two, which was far more than any other division in Europe. And I was thinking to myself, what, what the hell was going on here? So I thought that by focusing on, uh, the third ID, and then picking four characters that you could follow throughout the war, um, I could really sort of personalize and humanize that story of the unit that um, lost most and, uh, you know, you could argue fought hardest to liberate Europe. So I, I just thought it was a really, uh, maybe an, a, a good eye, a good way of being able to follow four extraordinary characters through nearly all the big battles in World War II. I think the only battle they weren't in was uh, was uh, the Battle of the Bulge, the, you know, Sicily, Italy, all the way through France, uh, Colmar Pocket, liberation of Germany, crossing the Rhine. These guys were all there because that was the, what the third ID did. I, I love the word humanize because that's what you do with these four men. And, and, and of course, Audie Murphy became this larger-than-life person through his Hollywood career afterwards. In Arkansas, Footsie Britt was this larger-than-life character. Uh, and and we, we assign these heroic sort of mantles on them. And, and, of course, they did heroic things. But what Against All Odds shows us is it was tough and it was, you know, not just all headlines and medals for these men. No. <laughs> I mean... Um... I don't think I I don't think I would have lasted a single day. And some of these guys were in combat for over 200 days. Um, I it was a brutal, brutal, enervating, soul destroying, incredibly hard slog uh, most of the way. Um, you could say that certainly about part of Sicily, Italy, you know, the Vosges Mountains, the Colmar Pocket. These guys were fighting a very determined enemy. And right to the last few days of the war, um, one of the guys I write about, um, Michael Daly, you know, he received a Medal of Honor for actions in Nuremberg. And this is like, you know, middle of April 1945, the war is going to be over in two weeks. And people are, you know, there's extremely tough street fighting in Nuremberg. And he was shot through the face, nearly killed. Um, and he'd been in combat since June the 6th, 1944. So, yeah, the fact that any of these guys got to the end, they were all wounded. All the people I talk about in the book were wounded. Some of them very seriously. Morris Britt from Arkansas, he lost his arm and he had been a, an NFL player, so that was the end of his career. They were wounded and I think they were damaged psychologically. You can't not be 
hurt in a profound way by that experience of loss and brutality. Um, and the amazing thing is that I, although they were incredibly heroic, I mean, to the point of being miraculously heroic, um, superhuman achievements in some ways, I think they were just as heroic when they came back home and how they either buried their pain or just put it behind them or just said, just said to themselves, I'm going to keep living. I'm blessed to be alive. I'm so, so, so lucky to be alive. I'm going to make the most of my life. I'm going to do whatever I can for other people. I mean, they, they all, to a man, led very productive lives after the war, and yet they'd been through enormous trauma and seen so many of their friends die and had every reason to give up and to say to hell with it, I'm going to go and sit in the bar and drink myself to death slowly. But they didn't do that. They they struggled and they overcame and they um, they gave something back to America. You know, they gave they gave a lot back. Um, and I I've always been inspired most, to be honest, by the guys that came back and had been through hell and really seen combat at the sharp end and came back and 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 lived to be sort of. You know, Bob Maxwell, when I talked to him, was 98, and he'd had an enormously productive, decent, good, honourable life. And uh, it's something to inspire all of us with, you know, that you know people can go through hell and come back and, and still have really, really, really good lives. Yeah, you mentioned the loss, and, and there were, obviously, in, in so many days of combat, you see friends and comrades die in front of you, and Michael Daly, uh, who, who you mentioned, had to watch young men die next to him and 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 sort of the at the end when it's VE day and much of the world is rejoicing it's bittersweet because these guys think oh i wish that other person had been able to make it with me and could could be here the same day it it it's a heavy burden yeah it's a, ter- it's, a it's a very heavy burden it's one that all veterans of combat carry and you know veterans day memorial day can be a very sad time a very you know very traumatic time for a lot of people still certainly you know people have been in afghanistan iraq vietnam even world war ii veterans you know michael daly uh, veterans day wanted to be mostly on his own he wanted to be alone with his memories because he was remembering all those guys that had given everything and you know being given a medal uh, Morris Britt said, you know, okay, I've got the medals, but there were a hell of a lot of guys that no one saw do what they did that should have got the medals, that deserved the Medal of Honor just as much as I did. So there's also, there's also that sense of kind of survivor's guilt mixed with the, the knowledge that you were just really extremely fortunate that you weren't killed and you came home and other people were just as brave as you, perhaps even braver, in many cases did incredible things that you perhaps couldn't have done and they were killed and, and, and you came home. So there's this, it's a very mixed feeling. Audie Murphy at the end of the war was in on VE day, was in the South of France. And when he heard the, the bells ringing, uh, you know, he said there was peace without, but no peace within. And, uh, a lot of veterans of all wars know exactly what I'm talking about there, that, you know, that the war doesn't end when the, when the guns, stop firing it stays with you you, you take away um, you take away what was done to you you become a different person you have to live with something that was done to you 
In fact, Audie Murphy, after one of the ceremonies for one of the medals, was asked, you know, what made him so courageous? And I loved his answer. It was, I wanted to get back to Texas. It was lack of sleep. It was anger. It was disgust. It was discomfort. I mean, there was nothing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he didn't want to be on the front of Life magazine, put it that way. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't, they didn't, none of them, none of them wanted to go through the war collecting medals. They, they weren't in it for medals. They were in it to get a job done. And they received the medals because they did their jobs supremely well. But none of them were motivated by the idea of, of getting a medal. I mean, it's interesting because towards the end of the war in, in um, March of 1945, Audie Murphy knew that he had been recommended for the Medal of Honor. And he did actually want to get that medal um, but as he wrote, wrote to his sister, it wasn't about the medal itself. It was the fact that if he got the medal, he would be sent home quicker. So, you know, the medal to him meant coming home. Uh, it didn't It didn't mean much more than that. He wrote to his sister and said, you know, if I bag the Medal of Honor, then uh, I get to come home. Uh, so it was all about getting home, you know, surviving, seeing his family again. And, and that medal, because it, there was a point system that could get you home. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, if you received the Medal of Honor, you were, um, you know, there was a kind of joke towards the end of the war that you know that, that they they um, either got a million dollar wound and that was the way to so either you know lost a limb or something or got really badly wounded, wounded badly enough so that you wouldn't be put back on the line, or you could win the Medal of Honor because both of them were the way the only ways that you could get back home because the attrition rate was so high and the level of casualties was so high that. You know, if you did get the medal, you were guaranteed to get at least live because they took you off the line because you were more valuable alive than you were in combat because you were a, you could be used as a propaganda figure or you could at least do help the war effort by going on a bond tour, etc. There was more more you were more useful alive to the U.S. government, the U.S. military than you were being killed because you could set a good example if you were alive, whereas if you were dead, then you know, you, you couldn't walk around inspiring people anymore, you know? Yeah, and, and headline writers, be it uh, papers like the Stars and Stripes, which are, of course, you know, inside the system, or, uh, you know, newspapers back home, they love this too, and it was this sort of double-edged sword that guys like Audie Murphy and Maurice Footsie Britt wanted not to be singled out, but it was seen as good for morale and good for, like you mentioned, bomb drive. So it was a it was a kind of tough spot to be in. Yeah, I mean, Morris Britt came back. Um, he had his arm blown off in in um, early 1945 at Anzio. He was incredibly lucky to survive that, actually. If it hadn't been for someone wrapping a rope, rope around the, the stump of his arm, and uh, he wouldn't have lived. But he, he came back and was more than glad to be, to play the superhero. You know, I mean... Here's the first guy, he's from Arkansas, he's a household name, he played for the Razorbacks, he was, you know, had been a Detroit Lion, and he came back and actually received the Medal of Honor on the 5th of June, 1944, in the Razorback Stadium, uh, you know, one of his sleeves tucked into his pocket, etc. And he very gladly played the hero, the superhero, and he was, um, you know, the first guy in World War II to win every single medal that you could win, Bronze Star, Silver Star, DSC, Medal of Honor. So he was a big deal. You can imagine 
1944, the height of World War II, what a huge deal this guy was. I mean, he's, he's the first to rack up every medal that was fighting in World War II. But, you know, at the same time, he knew that he was being not exploited, but he went along with it willingly because it, it was good for the war effort. It was really good for him to be doing what he did because he was an inspirational figure and he, and he raised a lot of money. But at the same time, he also felt, you know, that it was people were saying that he was a one-man army. You know, he was described in many headlines as being the action for which he received the Medal of Honor was in Italy. And they described him as, you know, Morris Britt, one-man army, as if he was just the only guy that had been there. And he said, you know, you know, there's, there's, there's never one guy on a football team that wins the Super Bowl. There's no, you know, there was never one guy that wins anything in the war. It was a team effort. And you need to talk about all the guys that I was fighting with, not just me. So he felt very uncomfortable by the end with being singled out all the time because he felt survivor's guilt. He felt incredibly lucky to be alive. And he was grief-stricken and heartbroken by the fact that so many guys that he'd led in combat had been killed um, in it, under his command. And also uh, the very day that he'd received the Medal of Honor, that he'd won the Medal of Honor, a lot of his guys, that he was, he was a company commander, a lot of those guys were killed. So just to be singled out as the single hero the one-man army made him feel extremely uncomfortable. And he, and he said so a couple of times in public when he was asked about that question. He, he got a little bit short. You know, he, he kept his cool, but he definitely said, hey, there was more than one of us there, you know. Alex Kershaw's book is titled Against All Odds and is in bookstores now. He spoke with Ozarks at Large's Kyle Kellums earlier this year. Speaking of against all odds, against all odds, Kyle Kellums is back in the Herald and Blanche Kalk News Studio with me. Welcome it, back. Well, thank you. It was a wonderful four weeks away. Yeah, you went out west, right? Yes. Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah. Did you have a good time? Had a wonderful time. Good, had a wonderful. Good, good. It was a wonderful respite. Uh, and I... Surprise, I recorded some sound while I was out there. Not much. Kyle Kelm's working on a vacation. <laughs> Color me surprised. It really wasn't work. I would just <laughs> find myself someplace and go, oh, this is kind of an interesting sound. Right. At least it was at the time. Well, you can take the radio man away from the radio, right. but you can't take the radio out of radio man. Here's the thing about the West. There's wind all the time. Mm -hmm. This was uh, below the Spanish Peaks, above Aguilar, Colorado, and it's just windy. Yeah, anytime I've been to Colorado, or even Kansas for that matter, yeah. all I remember is just wind. But it's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Those were snow-capped mountains. Uh, my wife and I went to Arches National Park, Mesa Verde, uh, Zion, Canyonlands, plus Monument Valley. Spent some time in Sedona, Arizona. Ended up uh, on a ranch outside of Albuquerque called Los Poblanos. Zion was my favorite, I think. Mm -hmm. And this is some sound uh, of the Virgin River going through... The National Park is you're on your way to what's called the Narrows, and you hear some birds. Zion is on my short list of parks that I still need to go to. It's just... Amazing, And all these national parks are relatively close to each other. Mm -hmm. I mean, Utah has five national parks. Now, I know at some national parks, 
I saw a report on CBS Sunday morning a couple weeks ago about how they're requiring reservations to get in. Did you encounter that at any of the parks you went to? Well, we made, we, Laura, the organized one, made reservations months ago when we were planning this. And so, uh, and the reason is they're so popular. At Zion, and this was not the busy time, but there were all sorts of retirees, Mm -hmm. you know, um, all sorts of college students, you know, just out, and a lot of families from across the world. Yeah. Uh, not many people my age from this country because they're working or the kids are in school. But if you waited long enough, you could get a snippet of Zion without people. That's the Virgin River. And uh, by the way, just outside the park, it rolls nicely by a brew pub, which Ah, I visited. I I think I saw a few uh, photos from said (laughs) brew pub. (laughs) Yes. Um, Now, we also, not just national parks, we went to Sedona, Arizona. Beautiful red rocks there, Mm -hmm. beautiful hiking. And if you got up early enough, you'd hear the early birds. Now, I've been to Sedona before, and I can honestly say it is one of the most beautiful places out west I have ever been. And it was my some of my favorite hiking because I'm not great with heights. Mm. And so um, there were some hikes in the Red Rocks where you could hit a view, but you weren't like next to a cliff. Right, right. Which I would have some sound from Arches or Mesa Verde, which were beautiful, but I was concentrating on not <laughs> falling to my death. Um, at the end, we went to this... Organic lavender farm in New Mexico. Is there a more public radio phrase than organic (laughs) lavender farm in New Mexico? Uh, Los Poblanos. It was land that was originally inhabited by ancestral Pueblo Indians. The current ranch founded in the early 30s by two members of Congress who married each other, Albert Sims and Ruth Hannah McCormick Sims. He was in the U.S. House from New Mexico. She from Illinois. And guess what we found out? He attended the University of Arkansas. You know, you always go on vacation and somehow are able to find a connection to Fayetteville or the University of Arkansas or Arkansas proper. Not only that, in the parking lot for this ranch, I ran into Carson Ronchetto, who was a student of mine in a lab like 15 or 16 years ago. <laughs> Seriously. I saw this license, this other license plate from Arkansas, and I asked this man, are you from Arkansas? He goes, yeah, Fayetteville. And around the car, King Carson goes, Kyle? And so, Arkies will find Arkies. Anyway... One of my favorite sounds, this organic farm also has alpacas, it has a roaming peacock, and it has chickens, and I just love the sounds of chickens. As someone who grew up on a chicken farm, I can take or leave the sound yes, of chickens, yes. but I know where you're coming from. I know, I know, I get that. Uh, it was a great trip, but it is great to be back, and I can't wait to, to be back with this show more beginning tomorrow. And it's so great to have you back. Uh, Kyle Kellum's off air. We've had debates about Bruce Springsteen, but in honor of you coming (laughs) back, I'm actually going to, for the only time, play Bruce Springsteen of my own accord. All right, and he's going on tour next year. Okay. Kyle Kellum's, thank you. Thank you, Timothy.
Once a year, climbers from all over the world come together in Jasper, Arkansas to test their endurance in the world's only 24-hour rock climbing competition. The official name of the event is the 24 Hours of Horseshoe Hell, but the contestants just call it Hell. Fort Smith documentarian Clay Pruitt filmed last year's event and will be screening his film at the Thaden School in Bentonville this Friday. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke to the two organizations sponsoring this film, Cody Ford from the Arkansas Cinema Society and Kelsey Ferguson from Limson Designs about the screening. One more time. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke to the two organizations sponsoring this film, Cody Ford from the Arkansas Cinema Society and Kelsey Ferguson from Lifson Designs, about the screening. At Arkansas Cinema Society, we strive to showcase as many different types of films and filmmakers as we can. And one of the things that Kelsey and I recently brainstormed about was, uh, hey, let's do something about the outdoors. And I had known Clay Pruitt for a few years. And you know, Clay, he, he's an avid rock climber, outdoorsman. You know, he, he's into all of it. He's also a you know, really good filmmaker. And he, he's a Fort Smith guy. So I, I told him a long time ago when we first met, I was like, man, we need to, we need to screen the 24 at some point. And then, you know, just Kelsey and I got to talk and we're like, well, let's let's do this together, you know? So the 24 is about the 24 hours of horseshoe hell that takes place in Jasper, Arkansas every year. And, you know, Clay has participated in it and he's, you know, and, and he's made a film on it. So I think it's going to be a really good time. And I think it's a great way to bring films to an audience who, you know, their passions aren't, you know, art house cinema, but it's like we're, we're, we're able to take stories to them that they can understand and appreciate and enjoy as opposed to just, you know, here's this black and white verite documentary <laughs> or whatever, you know. So I think it'll be a fun night. Did you know about this competition before or was it through, through Clay? Lives in as a brand, we are really intimately connected with this event. Uh, I actually attended it last year. I can tell you it is single-handedly one of the coolest events that exist. And the fact that it's right here in our backyard is such a privilege. It it's one of those it's one of those events that you just you can't really talk about it. You just have to go. You just have to experience it for yourself. And so when I really found out about this documentary that got me excited because not everyone has the ability, you know, to go out to events and spend that time and money. And the fact that we can bring the essence of that experience and and real life documentation of what that feels like to the audience right here in, you know, Northwest Arkansas in a downtown area, that that's really special. And I, I hope that people will come away from this feeling more excited to check out this genre of, you know, of outdoor recreation in general. Like it will go past just, oh my gosh, like I need to go see this event. Hopefully it sparks something to say, hey, maybe I'll actually get a day pass to a climbing gym, or maybe I will seek out a community of people who can teach me this skill or, hey, I used to do this, but I don't do it anymore. I fell off and now I think I want to get back into it. What kind of feeling do you hope people will leave with? What kind of experience? What are you looking forward to people watching and experiencing about this film? 
with the screening of the 24, I mean, we're really trying to bridge the gap and bring in different audiences. So I think for people, um, you know, who are into film, they get exposed to the outdoor recreation world a little bit more. And then people who are into outdoor recreation, they get to come and they get to see, you know, maybe they've been to the 24 and like, oh, man, that's yeah, I, I know that guy. I know that guy. Or maybe it's, you know, they haven't yet and it inspires them to go out. But one of the things about rock climbing and outdoor recreation in, in general that I've always found interesting is because I've done a little bit of rock climbing, but I've never like gone all in because I think most people I know who've done it go all in. And it's very much like a lifestyle thing. And, you know, they love it and they do it all the time. And so there is that really strong sense of community in that world. So I think this film does a good job of showcasing that sense of community. And, and I think people enjoy it for that. Kelsey, as someone who's experienced it, I mean, have you watched the the film yet or at least, you know? I declined to comment. (laughs) No, I have watched the film. Um, I, as much as I want to be surprised beforehand, I I did watch the film and I'm very excited. I, I think it does capture the essence very, very, very well. Yes. I was about to ask, does it capture the essence of the feelings, the rush of, of being there and being at the event? Yeah, I can tell you I've only been to the event in its full form one time. I'm not someone you, – you'll meet people that they have gone for 16 years in a row or something like that. The The event has been happening for quite a long time, but it only in recent times started to become a little bit more globally known. But as someone who has been there one time and how I – left that event feeling I think that there's there's a portion of that that I can I can really pull out from this film I know we were putting up a poster for example yesterday at the climbing gym in Bentonville and the first thing that happened was a staff member came in and saw the poster looked at it and was like oh my god is that the 24 hours of horseshoe hell you know just knew knew about it already and and that's the you know I hope that that community does to come to this (laughs) and and the other cool part is that the person we were talking to was like oh, wait, I'm a filmmaker exactly. as well. I do short films. I was like, well, you need to know about Arkansas Cinema Society because we're here, we're yes. doing education, we're doing screenings. And so we got to chat not only about rock climbing, but also just about ACS in general because our our mission at ACS is to grow the film ecosystem in the state through the tenets of watch, learn, and make. And you know, with this screening for the 24, I, it, it is you get to watch it, you get to see all these cool drone shots that Clay and the crew had going, all that. And I hope it inspires people, you know, if they're into outdoor adventure t- and recreation type things, to go out and make their own film, or if they're just kind of interested in filmmaking, like they'll go and do a narrative or a short doc, or you know. So that's it's really all about inspiring, and one of the best ways is to be able to see other work people have done. One thing that I notice is that we're putting a lot of investment into both of these areas, especially across this region. I represent and work for an outdoor apparel design company who specializes in making pants and gear that serves rock climbers. It's not just about giving them the best apparel to wear, but it's also about giving them the best opportunity to engage, right, to to build this community and to cultivate this community. And so when Cody approached me with this idea, I immediately felt, okay, I know I love film. I love TV. I love the outdoors. And I know for a fact that there are people here that are also loving both of these things and they're acting on both of these things. They're making short films at home or perhaps they are breaking out into this industry in a professional way and there's not really a cohesive space for this to be showcased yet. 
And that's surprising to me, considering how much we've got going on in both of these industries separately, right? So this is just one step towards bringing these two together. Like Arkansas Cinema Society, I, I can get involved there. There's something for me there, right? And same same thing with the other community. Oh, wow, I do love my art house films and I do love my black and whites, but I also am seeing beautiful cinematography and storytelling coming out of outdoor-based films, and I want to explore that genre further. There's nothing better than getting into a new genre of film. The powerhouses of of Arkansas, you know, the big-time funders, are both putting money into outdoors and entertainment. Why hasn't there been something that connects those two before? ACS, we are really excited about working with Lives In and just growing that genre, uh, the awareness and the love of the genre of outdoor recreation films. This is just the first of a few that we're going to do. So there's more coming uh, later in the summer and the fall. So just stay tuned on that. And in the meantime, if people are interested in attending, then they can go to ArkansasCinemaSociety.org. They can get registered. It is free to the public. Uh, we're going to be hanging out starting at 6 o'clock, just kind of socializing, mingling. And then at 7 p.m., we're going to, you know, the lights go off and the, the film comes on. So, I um, mean, you, you can pre-register or, you know, if you just want to come, you can register when you get there as well. But it is Friday, June 10th at Thaden School in Bentonville. So, Clay, not only are you telling me that this movie is free, but I can mingle with the people who created this movie and, you know, got it on the stage in the first place? You can mingle. (laughs) (laughs) And mix. You can mix and mingle. You can mix, you can mingle, and after the film is done, we will be moderating a QA and a with the filmmaker. So, nothing better than that. I think that's the magic of a film festival is getting to meet the people that are behind the production. It's not something you just get when you go to the movie theater. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke with Kelsey Ferguson from Lifson Design and Cody Ford from the Arkansas Cinema Society in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio last week. The film will be screened at the Thaden School in Bentonville at 7 on Friday, June 10th. Mission is free, but registration is required. This is 91.3 FM KUAF Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Roland, Oklahoma. Ozarks at Large is a production of KUAF. Contributors to today's show included Kyle Kellums, Rachel Sanchez-Smith, and Daniel Carruth. Our conversations between Roby Brock and political columnist John Brummett come to us through our partnership with Talk Business and Politics. We will be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7 for a brand new Wednesday edition of Ozarks at Large. Until then, be well.